Welcome to the second installment in Pop Screen's Boy Month, tracking the screen career of one David Jones. Uh, we are the Geek Show podcast that likes to deal with the good, the bad and the bizarre of movies, either starving by or about pop stars, covering a range of musical and cinematic genres from country and western to hip-hop, documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a writer for the Geek Show and Horrified.com, the British horror website. And I've been joined this week by... Mark Conleff. I'm also a writer for the Geek Show, as well as We Are Cults. Um... I've had some film essays published for Arrow Films. Got another one coming up at the moment, which I have to be top secret about. <laughs> so there's a bit of a spoiler there. And uh, I've also wrote a chapter in Scarred for Life, Volume 2, about 80s television series, Casualty. Excellent. So this week, you wanted to welcome in, didn't you, Mark? I did, yes. Seeing as we're talking about uh, Bowie in Baal, I thought mm. I'd... Uh, join in with a suitably uh, <laughs> tribute, suitable tribute for him, which goes a bit like this. Hang on a minute. <laughs> Ryan and Mark are talking about ball. <laughs> Directed by Alan Clark. <laughs> Starring David Bowie. <laughs> it must be pop screen. <laughs> Lovely. I I had actually had the exact same idea. Hey, <laughs> brilliant. Which is uncanny. That is so spooky. Whilst Pop Screen announced a Bowie month, even then the first film was a popular one, with Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman too. Now we're back to punish you. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. I was going to try and find my um, my fly swatter. I've got one of those electronic <laughs> fly swatters. Don't get that out, but you've got the whole distance with the guitar even better. Well, I feel like no one can do it properly because no one in the history of the world has ever had a, a banjo that looks like boys' banjo in bar. No, no, that is very true. It's a very, apparently it was a very vintage one, and he didn't know how to play it, which um, kind of comes across in the film itself, doesn't it? I, I just assumed that was method bad banjo playing, mm, but yeah, possibly. maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is Baal, which uh, for listeners who were unaware, and I'm, I'm thinking that's got to be quite a few listeners, right? Yeah, it's, I would think so. It's I a mean, rarity. We are doing Labyrinth later on in the month, but this ain't Labyrinth. <laughs> Although a few Muppets would have um, enlivened it a bit, perhaps. <laughs> well, Baal is one of those places which would work very well in a Muppet version, isn't it? If you had like <laughs> Baal as the only human and everyone around him as like... Dr. Bunsen Honeydew in Weimar in my outfit saying, a ball this new song of yours is absolutely terrible. Because you could have Oscar the Grouch as ball, couldn't you? <laughs> you could have ball playing to Waldorf and Statler and it would only slightly change the tone only, of the drama. Only slightly be different. Apart from him taking people's virginity, I think that's the thing that would, uh, that would scare off Disney, really. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Um, but, but this was a TV movie that Boyd made in 1982. I've, we have Letterboxd's prime catalogue of uh, British one-off play strands here with us Hello. this week. So what was this part of? Was it part of any any sort of wider series? I don't think it was, no. I may be wrong, but it, it, um, at the time it was like, Play for today, play of the month, play of the week. Mm. And I don't think it was any of those categories at all. I think it was just 
we have a budget and we have an hour's television to fill. So it was just a one-off play, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> because this is done by arguably the greatest talent directorially speaking to come up through those plays, which is Alan Clark. Show the viewers at home your t-shirt, Mark. Hey, ta-da! <laughs> <laughs> Smashing. <laughs> Yeah, one of my favourites, Clarky. Um, Mike Lee, Ken Loach, Alan Clark. That's the holy trinity for me. It's, yeah. And <laughs> I mean, anyone who's listened as far back as Cinema Eclectica will know that me and you have very different opinions on British social realists. We most do, of yeah, but we still get on. <laughs> we just, yeah. <laughs> The thing is, the point I'm making, even I love Alan Clark. He was yeah. great. Yeah. yeah, that's it. That's the main thing. Yeah, that's what we take from this today. Yes. <laughs> and by this point, he'd, he'd established himself pretty well, hadn't he? He'd spent the 60s and 70s building up an impressive sort of uh, canon of material, culminating in his play, which ended the 70s, which was Scum which also unexpectedly provided him a way into theatrical release movies when the BBC banned that play and it had to be remade and put out as a movie instead. Yeah, it was a case of necessity, wasn't it? Mm. Um, it was basically just let's remake the uh, the play that nobody's ever going to see, never ever going to see, that's what they thought at the time, mm. into uh, a cinematic feature. Um, which kind of, it's almost like the second act for Clark, really, at that point, because as you say, he's, he's done from the 60s through to the 70s as a, you know, he's, he's made a good name for himself. Um, yeah. He's caught, you know, the eye of the audience and the critics alike. Um, he's created a few enemies in television, <laughs> just generally with his behaviour. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he was never um, he was never the the wing commander type that the BBC uh, liked at that time. You know, the the um, Blazers and what have you. He was mm. banned. He was famously banned from the BBC Club, and also apparently is the only person to be banned from using the lifts at BBC Television Centre as well. That's extraordinary. <laughs> what what could happen? That dare I ask? What could happen? I have no idea. <laughs> I do know. I mean, just to just to distract from that slightly is um, around about this time, actually, nineteen eighty two. The young ones were invited to um, the BBC Christmas comedy uh, party. They would basically just do a, a party for the comedy department and all the famous people who had worked at the comedy department and all the, the crew and what have you would all get together for a shindig. Um, Memorably, Alexi Sale says that uh, Monty Python were banned from a Christmas party because they wore jeans. But um, <laughs> <laughs> what um, the young ones got up to that day was uh, was even worse because... Um, <laughs> even worse than wearing jeans. Even wow. worse than wearing jeans, yeah. Because, uh, well, there's an amusing one where... I'm going off piste already. There's an amusing one where <laughs> Alexi Sale um, was introduced to Kenny Everett by... Jim Moyer, who was then head of BBC Comedy, I said, oh, you'll know who this man is, won't you? Because they're thinking they're both comedians, they're both from Liverpool. But one grew up as a Marxist, the other one was a staunch conservative. Yes. Um, and Alexis Sell said, yes, I know who that is, and proceeded to blank him and just walked past. But Jim Moyer later said that that effect didn't really register with him. He just thought it was some kind of homosexual spat. <laughs> <laughs> But the real problem happened in the lifts uh, television centre when Roland Rivron decided to show um, Mrs. Valdunik and his penis. As one does, <laughs> right? Yes. And I don't think he got banned from the lifts at BBC TV centre. <laughs> so, <laughs> what Clark he got up to, who knows? Yeah. But yeah, he was forced to use the stirs all the time. That, that feels like a very sort of. A very class-bound punishment, doesn't it? Being forced yeah, to use yeah. stairs. Yeah, yeah. I suppose given his his sort of rather notorious um, poor dress sense and possible <laughs> hygiene standards, perhaps they were just like, we can't have him in a small confinement like the lift. 
It's possibly true, yeah. Maybe BBC Television Centre didn't really have an asbestos scare in the late 80s. Maybe they were just thinking, oh, we need to get Clarky out of a studio and into somewhere with fresh air for once. How can we do this? That would be true. Although the the the, the famous occasion in the 70s when they did get him in fresh air, sent him to Halifax to make Horace, and he was there for three hours, at which point um, after three hours he had tipped over the grill in the hotel restaurant because he'd had a fight with the uh, hotel owner, uh, got carted off to the police station, didn't like the way that the arresting officer was standing a bit too close to him, told him, if you keep getting that close to me, you'll regret it, and proceeded to punch his lights out. <laughs> it's a little wonder how this guy, you know, managed to direct scum so well, isn't it? How did he get inside those young offenders' heads? It's a mystery. I love the line that the magistrate apparently said, so Mr. Clark, how long had you been in Halifax before this happened? He said, about three hours. <laughs> I said, how long do you attend to stay in Halifax? He said, about three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this was very much um, the second stage of Clark's mm. career, which is a very interesting one, because although what we've just painted was a sort of maverick genius. He was genuinely well regarded as a man who could tackle most forms of drama and, you know, provide some good uh, plaudits and acclaim for, for the work he put out. Um, but from about, I'd say from about this point onwards, 1982, I think some of his Brechtian influence starts to, to come to the fore because he's very interested in alienation. Yeah. And it's not necessarily the alienation that Brecht would use, which would be, you know, to always make the audience aware that they're watching a performance. His was more a case of um, let's make that whole thing really alienating. Let's make it mm. to the point where you think, what am I watching? Is this worth watching? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what and- is this strange thing that's happening before me? And it all culminates in Elephant, uh, which yes. I think was the penultimate thing he completed before he died. And is yeah, it's either that or, f- or the firm. I'm I always sure get that. mixed up. I think I read some other people say it was the firm, but in a strange way, Elephant always feels like the end point to me because it's the yeah. most paired back example of his particular style you could imagine. yeah because he he was stripped by the eighties. He was stripping everything out of out of the work he was doing. Mm. Um, I think when you consider the three most alienating pieces like that is uh, Contact, Christine, and then Elephant. Yeah. And I know that Contact in particular, and I think Christine as well, actually, I think Elephant too, I think they all originally had stories with dialogue and narrative, and he just ripped pages out of the script. We don't need that. We don't need that. Because he could do it all with just atmosphere, looks, um, famously shooting uh, actors from miles away yeah, um, during contact. So you're just getting an actor's natural reaction, which, again, doesn't sound very Brecht because Brecht is all about performance. It's epic theatre. It's making sure that the audience are aware that they're watching a performance. This is yes. catching people on a worse to create a performance, which is uh, kind of interesting. Yeah, I think... When we talk, I realise that Brechtian alienation effects is one of those phrases that just makes people want to die. And if you're one of those <laughs> listeners, I'm very sorry about that. But yeah, <laughs> it's, it's important to note that when we talk about Brecht as being someone who was interested in performance, it's not in the way that a conventional drama is interested in performance, where you're meant to think, oh, I really feel for that person. You know, I really want them to win at whatever it is they're doing. Brecht wasn't averse to that, but he also wanted you to step back and look at how this applies to the world outside the theatre as well. That's right, yeah. Um, it was... I mean, the the, the the one thing I've been listening to recently was a podcast with Alexi Sale where they're actually talking about Brecht. Oh, yeah. Because um, apparently somebody said, tell me about Brecht, because, you know, you, you often mention him. So he got a Brecht expert in to talk about it. Um I think it was out last week, this podcast. Is that the Alexi um, Sale podcast, the one that he That's does? the very yeah. one, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it's called Jingle Jangle, that particular uh, episode, because apparently that was a low-rent kind of um, 
Weimar Republic cabaret at the time. You had the cabarets oh, and then you had the something called the Jingle Jangle, I think it was called, which is slightly more um, even more sinister now. I even would say. more sinister down at here, low rent, experimental <laughs> than uh, than even the cabarets, which just yes. You know, <laughs> sounds very baffling. But yeah, I mean, the, one of the things they, they, they said that just reminded me of Baal, actually, was they said, Brecht has no grasp of geography in the sense mm. that he would say a place, but not necessarily know where that place was. <laughs> yeah. And you can see, you know, there are Brecht plays that are set in America, there are black Brecht plays that are set in China, in Italy, all over the world, but they are all fundamentally set on stage. They are even yeah. less realistic in their depictions of it's these like, places than Shakespeare absolutely. was. Absolutely. It's like putting a, a pin in a map and saying, right, I'll say that. And it sounds like a fantastical place mm. because it's just beyond... It's like saying Timbuktu, I suppose, is our nearest... Yeah. Um, our nearest equivalent, really. But although that sounds fantastical, he's centering something that the audience should think, oh, yeah, this is this is like what we're going through now. This is this is life that we're going through now. Even though mm. it's a performance, even though it's in a fantastical place, there's a grain of truth to everything that I can take home and consider of, about society in a wider context. And one of those early exotic plays that he wrote... Uh, was the rise and fall of the city of Mahogany, who's, which includes the song Alabama Song, which was covered by... David Bowie. No, sorry, the right answer is the doors. Yes, uh, <laughs> it, yeah, it was covered by David Bowie in a song that he recorded to fill out his RCA contract that is... I mean, I think it's fantastic, but listeners, if you've never had a panic attack... Why not listen to David Bowie's version of Alabama song and you'll understand exactly what it's like? Yeah, that sounds about right, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's it's true. It's terrifying, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah, that's what one of the things that first turned me on about Bowie as a, as a teenager though, was it's just like, what is this weird sort of soundscapes that I'm hearing? Mm. And it's like, I don't like it, but I feel compelled to keep listening to it. And it's yes. like, it's like Stuart Lee said about the, the fall, isn't it? You know, you, it's not nice to listen to, but you feel compelled to keep going. It's like you've it's like having really bad medicine, isn't it? And just yeah. constantly just I will get better if I just listen to this. <laughs> the amazing thing is about Baal that I don't know if Clark did, but his producer, Lewis Marx, who, as we know, also the writer of several Doctor Who stories. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh had um, no idea that Boy had any interest in Brecht. No, that's right. Um, originally, um, Clark wanted uh, Stephen Burkhoff. Mm. Uh, but I think uh, Mark sort of dissuaded him of that because I think the argument was um, Burkhoff was too class-centric an actor and it would ground it in a very um, English way to do with our um, class system as opposed to, uh, you know, Bavarian society before World War One, which is when Baal was presumably set, I think. Yes. It's yeah. around about that era, isn't it? It was written, it was completed in 1919, but it's set, I think, before World War One. Yeah. That's correct. I, yeah, I think it didn't get put on stage till about 23 or something like that. It's, his, it's technically, his, it might be his first play, I'm not sure. Yeah. His, yeah. his first sort of... Um, I mean, I'm sure he wrote stuff when he was a kid, but yeah, it's yeah. his first proper play. Yeah. Um, and it's an yeah, piece of work, I think. Oh, interesting, it's... but very strange. Yeah. I mean, there's some interesting choices that uh, that Clark makes that I'm sure we'll get onto. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's a. I'm not a big fan of it, as as we've discussed in private previously. Um, yeah, this is an interesting one for me to talk about. I think I'm primarily here because you know I love Alan Clark, but even for me, this is quite low down on um, on my appreciation of uh, of Clark's work. Really, I think I have a warm feeling towards it. The first time I watched it was straight after Bowie died. And yeah, yeah. You just you you watch it in that context, and you think as you do now to a lesser extent, but you think, oh God, there's no one in the world now who would do something like this. There's no, no one in the world who would think of it, who would pull it off so well. You know, this is what we've lost. I think re-watching it, yes, I can see that there are many flaws in it. It certainly isn't 
anything close to, you know, Road or Elephant or Pendus Fen or all those other truly great Alan Clark works. But yeah. I do find it a really fascinating and unusual piece of work. It's very, it's very unusual and it's very fascinating, yeah. If it's mm. good, it's a different question. <laughs> but that, that's, that's the thing, isn't it? Again, it's that idea of like, this is weird, but somehow it's stimulating. And I must mm. see more of it to see what... It, 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 they're not easy gifts to an audience, but they're, they're, they're nourishing. And they weren't but, at the time either. I mean, no, no, not at all. No. As we've discussed with privilege before, it is tempting to look back at stuff like this and think, oh, God, you'd never get something like this made today. And you think, well, they barely got it made then, then. to be honest. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, the BBC must have been amazed that, like you say, it must have been wonderful to find out that. Uh, Bowie is into Brecht and you know mm. German expressionism because it just seems like a fortuitous moment but I mean you've just got the biggest rock star on the planet to play a lead in an yeah. hour's piece of television I mean that's pretty incredible really um, Anyone else <laughs> would insist that the result should be commercial in some way Yeah I guess Yeah <laughs> <laughs> But then we're talking about the BBC who sort of, you know, gave the Beatles how much to do Magical Mystery Tour for the same yes. sort of length. <laughs> Look what happened there. <laughs> but, but it's it, it, it's a good choice. I mean, I, I get what I get where Clark was coming from with Burkhoff. Mm. Um, but I think Bowie's a better choice because I think even Bowie would be the first to admit he's not an actor. Mm. Um I think he has given great performances and some of Absolutely. them have been transformative ones. But I think as with pop stars in movies in general, you have to allow for the fact that there are some people in the audience who are just going to sit back and go, that's David Boy, in a way that they never would with Stephen Burkhoff. That's true. But that works brilliantly in, in, a, in a Brecht terms here because, yeah. you know, again, you're always supposed to remember that you're seeing an actor. Are you seeing a person playing yeah. a character? I mean, again, going back to the Alexis Sale podcast, the guy, I can't remember the guy's name now, but he was saying that one, one of the things that Brecht always wanted was sort of anecdotal acting. If I was to tell you today that I fell over in the park, which I legitimately did, <laughs> <laughs> I was walking the dog and um, something flashed out from the bushes and the dog went for it. And I went straight with it. Like, you know? <laughs> so the dog went, and I went, and landed flat on my face, you know, and picked myself up and that. It's that kind of anecdotal um, sort of acting that I've just yeah. had to do a dog impression. I've had to do that. Oh, I fell over. You put voices on, you know, um, you might say, I then bumped into the neighbor who's like, oh, look at the state of you. What, what have you done? You're doing that voice automatically, aren't you? Yeah. you? Sometimes you don't even know you're doing it. That was sort of Brecht's end goal in terms of performance, really, apparently, that he, he wanted that kind of, almost like you just put in, clothing on and then dispensing with it straight away so the audience is always aware that it's a performance going before them and it's a strange thing i mean it would be impossible to do in television now because television now i find is maddeningly obsessed with this quality that they call cinematic which to me has nothing to do with cinema it's just about it being glossy and naturalistic yeah and yeah everything in Baal and everything in brecht is against that. Yeah. I mean, this wouldn't get made today at all. No. I mean, we you mentioned Doctor Who there, and we, we've, we've talked about um, how television was 40 years ago. It was shot um, as theatre. So you yeah. would have people performing with the backs to, uh, you know, the, the back of the wall, the set wall, uh, facing out to the perceived audience and the four banks of cameras yeah. that are capturing the action so that you get very odd, unnatural kind of... Um, I mean, the best example is Doctor Who, isn't it? You know, when mm. you think of um, the TARDIS console, it's just like that, isn't it? Yeah. You know, you don't, you don't see that bit, but you do see that bit there. And then you've got the console in the middle and, like, the Doctor will be stood there and then you get his companions sort of stood either side like that, but they're playing out slightly towards yeah. the audience. Um, 
this is very unnatural. People would literally walk. It's like I see now with COVID, when you're aware of certain dramas yeah. that are made under COVID conditions, you're watching, like Doctors is brilliant for it. Mm. I don't know if anybody watches the mind-numbingly dull but curiously addictive <laughs> afternoon drama Doctors because <laughs> you watch people who are supposed to be family and one will walk in and one finds one sat at the t- at the TV and instead of sitting down on the sofa next to them or going standing right up to them like an ordinary family do, they're two metres apart. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm doing this. <laughs> it's just so weird. And it is a very unnatural kind of um, way to present stuff, which you just don't see, apart from COVID restrictions, you don't see on television anymore. This um, this example was was determinedly shot like that mm. um the first scene in particular apart from bowie you know hammering Singing away at the band and joe yeah. yeah the first scene where he's being courted by um the the middle class uh elite mm. and he's just happy to feed his face you know and just sort yeah. of like swap past questions and ignore them and generally just only pay attention when you know the the pretty daughter arrives um it's shot as if you're like in row four of a theatre. Mm. I mean, this you've got David Bowie and you can barely see him. There's no close-ups. Everything yeah. is shot. It's such a distance. And it is that kind of, well, this was cabaret. So uh, from Clark's point of view, I think he, he is conscious of what an audience in a theatre might have seen. And it yeah. is just shot like that repeatedly, and- really. And it is deliberate. I mean, you can compare it to some of the very early stuff he did, which also have that theatrical look, because back in the 60s, everything had that theatrical look on television. But around this time, he's making stuff like uh, Contacts, you mentioned. He's making stuff yeah, like yeah. Beloved Enemy, which have much more reuse of location work and, and actually cinematic style, a style that actually looks like cinema yeah, rather yeah. than just being over budget, which is what cinematic means now. Um, yeah, yeah. But so, so this is a massive step away from that style he's developing at the moment yeah he's he's becoming more interested in the steady cam is the huge thing yeah i mean he they're they're a fascinating generation that came up in the bbc at that time really yeah and they're all a bit like magpies um in the sense that they will sort of see what the other one's doing and sort of copy it slightly i'd seen memorably he'd seen stephen freer's uh walter which used steadicam and he was just bowled over by it and that became his his big thing really the the constantly moving the, the he made what he called walking movies and if you see anything from um rolled onwards really the walking movies um you, you, yeah. people remember the, the steady cam shots of um Enrique Sue and Bob too oh, and yeah. Leslie Sharp in road yeah you can all you can hear the feet yeah I mean Leslie Sharp apparently walked something like 16 miles that day just wandering round and round this wasteland and, yeah. yeah yeah it's uh, it's it's really fascinating but he was just obsessed with just capturing movement on screen mm. uh with this I think he'd looked at what um, John McGrath was doing on BBC, uh, John McGrath of the 784 uh, Theatre Company. He'd just done two Play for Today's, uh, two sequels called uh, The Adventures of Frank. So there's Adventures of Frank Part 1 and Adventures of Frank Part 2. And that was using what was very popular at the time, which is Quantel Graphics, mm. which, of course, he uses here. And the way that, again, that Brecht thing of breaking the fourth wall so we'll do it in a way that is very uh, state-of-the-art computer graphics. So you're making use of the fact that this is an artificial scenario. To just you're almost it's like you see in um, in Brecht, it's mem- in um, in Baal, it's memorably that he's against this sort of like white background, isn't he? Yeah. So it, it, it you just feel like this is this is the TV bit, this is the artificial bit when he talks to the camera, and the way they use the split screen, and uh, mm. sometimes it's a static photo while he's talking, and other times you might see him and Jonathan Kent, his co-star, walking again, motion on camera, even though they're not walking anywhere, it's the scenery moving behind them. It is yeah. that motion thing that he's so fascinated in. 
And those split screen segments, I think, are the real triumph of the show. You know, they remind you of that famous story about Lev Kuleshov, the Soviet editor, where he uh, got a photograph of a very famous actor and spliced it into some footage and, you know, cut from the photograph to a bowl of soup, cut from the photograph to a woman's face. And the audience would watch it and say, ah, he's clearly portraying hunger. He's clearly portraying heartbreak, but it was the same image every single time. You know, the editing creates context and Clark manages to do that here with split screen, with the close-up of Boy singing The Drowned Girl. Mm. And with the close-up of, uh, is it Tracy Fields who plays that character of her face? Tracy Childs, I think. Tracy Childs, that's yeah. her name. Later yeah. in um, Howard's Way. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are some uh, remarkable before they were famous finds here, aren't they? Because the other woman in Val's life is a very young Zoe Wanamaker. Zoe Wanamaker, yeah, yeah. Um, Julian Wadham, who's uh, still consistently working. If yeah. you ever need a slightly older uh, English gentleman, it seems to be Julian Wadham. I think he's now <laughs> steed in Big Finish Avengers audios, right, I think, now. Right. So, yeah, he's um, he's uh, Baal's mate who Baal subsequently does the dirty on quite early on, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's really striking in this, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Anyone in the film with David Bowie is going to take the second most intense close-ups in the in the film, but uh, well, no, Wadham gets close here, I reckon. It does, yeah. I mean, they are very. It's a good cast. I think he was. He always knew how to cast things well. Clark. Yeah. He always got a really good ensemble. There's never really much call for somebody who doesn't seem to be getting what's going on. Yeah, you know, you always with some. Even with some really good play for today's, you know, if you look at drama that's been made at that time, you might see one person who thinks they didn't quite get the memo, you know, <laughs> it mm. doesn't seem to be a problem when Clark's uh, doing something. But people, despite, you know, despite what in-house feelings that the BBC might have been about him, people who actually worked with him on the floor usually had nothing but praise for him. Yeah. Even though he did some pretty awful things to people. <laughs> <laughs> Like the most famous one is Scum, where he sort of like lined up the actors and then lined up the uh, the black kids, you know, for the murder ball scene. Mm. Um, the black kids were just locals, apparently. Right. Uh, and he got between um, both groups. He'd go up to uh, the black kids and go, these are calling you something awful. You know, these are not Ponzi actors. You've got to show them, you know, you're going yeah. hard on these. Yeah. Like, you know, then they go up to the actors and go, you know, they're really going to fucking murder you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He would, he was all about dissent and just trying yeah. to get something really exciting uh, on screen. Definitely. And I think but that, that's why it, he has this incredible track record, doesn't he? Discovering new talent. Yeah, yeah. And you say, you, you think of people like Tim Roth and Gary Oldman and, and what have you, they will still, and Janine Davitsky as well, memorably, in uh, starting Diane, mm. they will still speak incredibly highly of him, incredibly highly. Yeah. I do wonder how much um, Clark saw in the character, uh, sorry, of himself in the character of Baal as well, because yeah. it's that kind of scruffy... Um, genius that mm. sort of people want to uh run to but also want to be are also repelled by as well <laughs> it's strange isn't it because you can sense a lot of different angles on Baal. a lot of the creators seem to be pulling in different directions in a way that i think is really productive because Brecht was inspired to write this uh, by a play called The Loner by Hans Jost, which I haven't read reportedly. It's very sentimental kind of German romanticism about a dissolute poet who repents on his deathbed and sees the error of his ways. So part of what Baal is is just razzing that, really, about a dissolute poet who continues being a fucking arsehole until he (laughs) falls over dead. Um, Which is quite funny, but there's some other context that I think can be quite misleading, which is that Jost, in his later career, would go on to write propaganda for the Nazis, and Brecht, in his later career, famously wouldn't. (laughs) Um, So... 
it has that air of being kind of a, a, a warning tremor of Nazism, but I don't think Baal himself is a Hitler analogue, really. I think it's more about trying to find the rotten underbelly of that kind of sentimental, bucolic, happy dancing peasants Germany that the Nazis used as propaganda, yeah, yeah. rather than saying, you know, that this guy is, you know, he's not Steerpike in Gormenghast. He's not meant to be analogous to Hitler in that way. No, I mean, it's. <laughs> I was just about to come up with a phrase, but sometimes it's a phrase that um, you sort of go into dark and disturbing waters with because now it's become a context when you hear this phrase now it's like an apologist for racism but mm. Baal is a character in my mind that will call a spade a spade now when yes, you hear that yeah. phrase now you're automatically thinking of some gammon wanker <laughs> yeah. who just doesn't like the fact that he can't call you know oh they can see it in their rap records yeah, but exactly. I can't exactly or even down to you know um as we're recording this now, uh, the Jubilee weekend <laughs> has finally <laughs> left us. Thank fuck. Yes. But apparently, Len Goodman got uh, several letters, several yes. sort of complaints at the BBC, didn't he, for saying um, foreign, foreign muck. muck? Yeah. So again, that to to people who would uh, defend Len Goodman for that, they'll say he's just gone a spade a spade. His mum mm-hmm. didn't like foreign cuisine, you know. He'd, it's not a racist term, but I'm so I'm always a bit uh, when you yeah. use that phrase, calling a spade a spade. But Baal is that character who would, it's the Emperor's New Clothes type of character, isn't it? Mm. He would, he, he points at the pomposity and the, uh, the, um, petty manners and morality of, uh, of society at the time, um, which includes that whole sickening heap of sentimentalism that was just sort of like Mm. rife in sort of Bavarian Germanic society really marvellously Brecht's working title for one of the early songs he sings remembering Marie was sentimental song number 1004 which is (laughs) very much the tenor of the thing I think you wouldn't think he went to write the Thripney Opera would you? No But that was, I guess that was, I mean, there's a lot of stuff talked about Brecht and I'm in no way an expert on, on him at all. Um, but like you said earlier, a lot of people are like, oh shit, the minute you hear stuff yeah. like, you know, epic theatre, alienation technique, blah, 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 blah. The the crucial kernel of information really with Brecht is that whatever he's doing, it's in opposition to what's going on at the time, yeah. I think. Yeah. So he's seen the way that... Um, sentimentality is on the rise mm. after the first world war they're always sort of like trying to look back to a sort of golden era that probably never existed anyway which is kind of what we're doing now it has a um, certain yeah that kind of reactionary sentimentality does feel very topical again doesn't and it? the worrying thing is of course you know with the benefit of history we could see where that worrying sentimentality went to yeah. in germany and shit it might go here as well <laughs> yeah. but it, it is like that thing isn't it where you know there's this constant rumbling on scandal about the airlifting of animals after Kabul, out of Kabul, yeah. and the sort of person that is intended to impress uh, the sort of you know, the sort of Ricky Gervais type people who go on and on about the little baby animals with the sprained legs, but when you get them onto actual human beings suffering, they're not asked me, should have thought of that before they became disabled, shouldn't they? Yeah, yeah. don't uh, even start me on Ricky Gervais. Gervais. <laughs> yeah. Currently, um, I think it's my now, I mean, I've been on Letterboxd for 11 years this year, and I've watched my review of um, Gervais's last comedy act rock it up to about fourth popular review i've ever written you must have been sitting there thinking if i'd have known the secret to this was just calling ricky gervais a dickhead i would have, I'd have done it years do ago years. I, i'd have done it even when he was funny then i'd have just you know, <laughs> anything to get noticed you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's true what you say about Baal in clark's version being a character who is someone you find yourself drawn to despite his repellence and despite the unforgivable things he does. He gets your vote, doesn't he, Mm. in the long run? Whether that's intentional 
to the source material. I'm not entirely sure. I think it has, I think it's appropriate because I think what Brecht is always writing about is not so much a character, but the system. system. And I, I think you could stage a version of Baal that had a properly repulsive Baal that everyone in the audience would go out hating, but the audience should go out hating the people who pander to him and uh, yeah. hypocritically repelled when he starts to behave like an ass. Yeah, you know, that's true. Those yeah, are yeah. the villains, not yeah. him. It's, it's pointing a finger at society, which I think um, both Brett and Clark did very well. Mm. Um, I mean, Clark's apparently famous mantra on set was, um, let's get the pig out, let's get a good look yes. at it, and then let's kill it. Yeah. <laughs> The pig is sort of like society in that term, really. But it's interesting, and it's only just occurred to me then when I said he gets your vote and whether that is mm. right for the source material, because Rita Sue and Bob too is a good example of that mm. in the sense that Bob becomes a hero that you want to somehow win the day, which is very hard now in for younger generation or this present generation to watch because he's a fucking paedophile yeah yeah <laughs> he's a middle-aged man with two schoolgirls, and that is never going to sit well in society now but at the time and he didn't even then i mean andrea dunbar famously hated what clark did with uh with rita sue and bob too because her um conclusion to her original play ends completely differently it just sort of ends with um the women really talking about how men will always fuck me over. Whereas Clark's film is like, he's, he's back in the bosom of his two young girls. You know, he, managed, he goes to bed, he goes upstairs, gets to the bed and they're both in there waiting for him when he thought that they dumped him. Um, and it's weird, isn't it, Rita to see and Bob because it seems to be the one Clark film which does like get to people who were not going to it for the politics. I know the tagline was Thatcher's Britain with its knickers down, which is a great tagline, but yeah. it, it feels like even more so than something like Scum, people will watch Rita Sue and Bob too in a quite apolitical frame of mind in a way yeah. that they obviously never will with, you know, Elephant or something. They go to it for the the body comedy yeah. and the funny Northern accents, mm. really. Um, it's almost, it's almost carry on, isn't yeah. it? Really, but Clark was always um, Clark wasn't a, a, um, a middle class filmmaker. You know, he, he mm. wanted the working class to watch what he did. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, he famously used to say that. Yeah, I think somebody came in on set one day with like the Guardian or the Independent, you know, a whole yes. stack of newspapers, and he'd sort of say, "You really need to read the fucking Sun." You know? Yes. <laughs> Get everything you want out of that. You know? Yeah, which for scouts, I mean, obviously it's before Hillsborough, is it? Yeah, Yeah. Danny Boyle sold that one. Yeah, Yeah. they need the fucking sun, everything's in there. (laughs) 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 But of course, it's before Hillsborough, so I suppose, um, slightly more forgivable, yeah, exactly. Yeah, now you sort of, yeah, you'd have to set the context, but again, but that is meant to be a challenge, isn't it? You are meant to go. A bit yeah. to that, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. And you, there's, there's a part where you think, is he just trolling you? Yeah. Or is he just, you know, or does he genuinely mean that? But it's, I think a lot of it is trolling, but I think he, I think it's a way that he kept his finger on the pulse of what his audiences wanted. I don't think yeah. Clark would have read this. I don't, well, I don't think for one second Clark would have voted conservative, put it that no. way. And I don't think he would for one second have picked up the sun and read all the sort of Murdoch flag waving of Thatcher at that time I think yeah that's all you need in life you know Uh, because it's interesting to point out that especially in this context now we're talking about Baal um, this stage of his his sort of career he's more interested in alienating people Mm. at a time when his core audience felt alienated by what was going on in the country so I think that the feelings of his core audience definitely come into play with what he's doing with with screenplays at that time to just dispense with scripts and structural narrative and just say I can do it with movement I can do it with um, you know certain shocking scenes like Elephant because it's just mm. one after the other isn't it yeah um, or Christine just watching young children just shoot up in 
while children's television plays in the background. You know, these are shocking scenes and it is supposed to repel, you know, because these people are disenfranchised. So it becomes almost like filmmaking of disenfranchisement. Yeah, and I think it also links in, I mean, particularly with Christine, it links into what he's seeing going on in the country in general. And this is easy to see when you look at his work in the context of those astonishingly good BFI box sets that came out a few years back of all this TV work that survives. Um, You look at his early plays, you look at something like Sovereign's Company, Mm. and it's a it's a play about an institution. It's a play about a particular institution, how it works, how it affects people. And by the point in Thatcherism when he's making Christine, those institutions are gone from people's lives. You know, yeah. anything that could have helped someone like Christine in the years gone by, whether it's social services or the church or local government or the NHS, they're being paired back and sold off and all you have in its place is what he's exploring in films like that, an elephant, which is just the sort of numbness of bad things happening. The chasm of where things would yeah. have stepped in and now no longer there. I mean, it's it's very true. Um, I mean, you're talking at a time when sort of like, you know, for want of a better term, it's not particularly politically correct, but, you know, asylums were then mm-hmm. suddenly occurring the communities coming into play. You know, yeah. the, the things that you used to rely on in society are no longer uh, prevalent. And he was very much an institutional filmmaker. I think somebody mm-hmm. once called Kubrick an institutional filmmaker as well. And there's, there's a certain yeah. overlap in yeah. their styles, I think, certainly with Steadicam and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it'd be interesting to try and watch something like Sovereign's Company and then watch Full Metal Jacket to yeah. see what sort of way he's both looking at um, military life. Uh, so, yeah, he was definitely an institutional filmmaker, but at the point of the 80s, I think he's interested in the lack of institution or what institution has been replaced with. What It's almost like the negative aspects of institutional uh, sort mm. of structures and foundations are now just society becomes this this blob of institution yeah yeah it's full of negative context you know i mean even even with rita sue and bob too you know yeah yeah there should be someone intervening in that situation you know absolutely yeah doesn't hate bob have a point if this was a ken loach film there'd be social services at the end coming in to sort of like you know realize what's gone on um, but this isn't. This is a Sir Alan Clark film, and it's yes, it's played for laughs. Yes, it's very, very funny. But watching it now, uh, certainly in the context of a, a very dear friend of mine who watched it and didn't like it particularly mm. because of you know the the sense of abuse that's going on there yeah. uh, and the sense of uh, unequal ground between male and female characters. Um, I see it too, absolutely. But I see it as a critique of. of patriarchal society that we continue to live in but at the time in the 80s it was even worse because you know it, it we, we didn't have that that level of um awareness as, as we see now with like characters like you know jimmy savile Stuart hall rolf harris you know mm. these were predators out in the open and people would turn a blind eye because it just people thought we well, but that's what goes on you know, yeah, yeah. And it's it's horrible to look at now, but and it's telling, it's interesting that um George Koskin, who played Bob, uh, one of his last big roles on television recently was as a, a paedophile police officer in line of duty. One of those oh, great right. cinematic one of those great cinematic um TV programs that that uh, the BBC are more keen on making now. Yes. <laughs> with a Photoshop picture of him shaking hands with Jimmy Savile. Oh, is that the one where they had the Jimmy Savile? Yeah, that yeah. was very odd, wasn't it? I yeah, remember that yeah. people talking so, about that when it was out. Mm. It's really interesting to see um how that plays, really. Especially with with Costigan apparently said that. On set, talk to Clark. He said, Clark apparently said to him, How do you see this panning out, this film? And he said, Well, I don't know about you, but I want him to win because, you know, you're playing that part. You've mm. got to invest a certain, um, 
empathy and be your uh, sort of advocate for your character yeah. haven't you even if they're awful yeah exactly and classable so do i and i can see why andrew dunbar hated that because again it's men getting over getting one over on her yeah uh, but like i say and i may be wrong and i'm sure my friend in particular will pull me up about it <laughs> and i'm sure a lot of uh more um feminist people than me although i do consider myself to be a feminist and more women who might listen to this podcast or watch this podcast might say yeah you're talking about your ass mates but Mm. i'll go with it you know i do see it as a a critique of patriarchal society and the framework that we allowed things to go on at that time with that kind of oh it's just a laugh isn't it yeah and i think that's definitely dunbar's intention i mean yeah uh, my main other than Rita Soon Bob 2, my main knowledge of Dunbar comes from one of my favourite British films of the century, which is Cleo Barnard's The Arbor. It's an absolutely yeah. incredible film, which it fantastic film. tracks her life and her daughter's life and is just devastating. But, you know, her, her daughter's in some way identified with Rita and Sue. You know, her, her daughter said, oh, if it was made now, their lives would be far much worse. They'd have that happen to them and they'd just get addicted to drugs or go into prostitution. Exactly. And it's interesting, it. like you say, in the space of, what, two years, he's made Christine, which could yeah. almost be, you know, what... What they uh, thought. What uh, Andrea's daughters would yeah. say, would say was, you know, the outcome of, of that, really. But, I mean, even... <clears throat> Even though she had her problems with the with the film, um, she herself must have known that society around her, the community on on um, in Leeds, must have just thought, "Oh, it's a laugh, isn't it? Good yeah. old Bob, you know, pat him yeah. on the back. Oh, you jammy bastard!" That's that horrible attitude to sexual abuse, basically. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure she was familiar with that. Yeah, I agree, but. Um... Yeah, the, the talk about sympathy is interesting because, of course, one of the other things you've got here is that the lead is not played by a very good character actor like George Costigan. It's an actual rock star. And yeah. that makes the question of audience identification and charisma into a very different thing, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because it's like whether Bowie fans come into it will obviously just love Bowie. Yeah. So it is kind of like, well, he's got my vote straight away. Yeah. Um, whereas I'm coming to it thinking, even though I'm a Bowie fan, I'm coming to it thinking that's David Bowie playing a role, which I think is mm-hmm. what Brecht would have appreciated from this production. And that it's yeah, it's a, it's a visible presence. There's elements of it, there's elements of it that play into Bowie's persona in an almost metafictional way almost almost as much as the man who fell to earth it's just less on the nose i guess because the man who fell to earth is a, a great example of that because he's playing an alien obviously you know what could be more boy but if you go into david boy's early career you can find all sorts of songs like signet committee and quicksand which express this deep unease about how an audience identifies with a rock star and whether there's maybe something a bit dictatorial about that. You know, you have Ziggy Stardust, who is an apocalyptically bad influence on the society that idolizes him and is destroyed by that society for that reason. And so, you know, there's an element of thematic consistency to that where part of you just wants to watch Baal and think, yeah, you know, those fucking toffs, go after them, make them look stupid, play all your dirtiest songs, make them drop their monocles. <laughs> and then he like murders someone or molests an underage girl. And yeah. And you think, oh well, that's I should have seen that coming. That's a logical end point of the sort of person he is, the sort of person who I was cheering on, you know? Yeah, yeah. And again, it's that it just punches that mawkish yeah. sentimentality brilliantly doesn't it because yeah. i mean the minute he says i live in a garret or you live in a garret don't you and he, he says his, his address you know number something a whatever mm. you know um that has a, that to this day has a has connotations that romantic connotations of long-suffering artists scrabbling to get by on life but they've yes. you know they've got talent they've got dreams they've got ambition they could also be a fucking cunt, couldn't they? Which Bob yeah. clearly is. You know? So that that whole romantic 
um, stereotype is just punctured straight away by showing him at his most venial, really, isn't it? You know, absolutely, it's, 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 yeah. It, and he's he looks repulsive. It's like the it, it doesn't quite succeed in making David Bowie not sexy, but it gets closer yeah. than you'd think was possible. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that people say sort of like, you know, um, Bowie, Thin White Duke, you know, or Heroin Chic and that kind mm. of stuff. It's like, no, this is this is heroin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Look at the guy's teeth in this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the way they're sort of like, it's a fantastic makeup job to get that yes. horrible green, ugh. And it's yeah. one of the reasons why I think he is such a successful casting choice in this. I mean, there's another version of Baal made for German TV by Volker Schlondorf in the 70s. This is this the one with Fassbender? Yeah, it starts Baal. when you've yeah. Fassbender. I've not like, seen that. I've not seen it. It was suppressed for a long time because Brecht's widow was unhappy with it. But, right. Um, I mean, just on the central casting choice, I don't want to fat shame René Yverna Fassbinder, but I do not buy him as a starving artist. No, no, The artist part, he's got down pat, don't yeah. get me wrong, but... He's a bit too quick to the buffet table, really. He is he? a bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that, that would... Slightly worse, isn't it? All right. you know, if his mate opens up an ex- exhibition, he's he's at the buffet table, but he's gone through a lot of buffets, hasn't he? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yeah, that kind of <sighs> elegantly wasted look that um, that Bowie was famous for is not there. It's more of a forty-inch wasted look, really. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> But this is this is an interesting spot in Bowie's career, I think, that rarely gets analysed in the depth it does because he's in a transitional period. He's just come out of his infamously like exploitative contract with Main Man Records. Mm. He's going to release Let's Dance fairly soon. But in between, he's sort of playing around. He's doing a lot of different interesting things of which... This and the soundtrack to this are some of the more intriguing and the more, you know, the, the ones that feel more like someone who's thinking, I, I mean, I'm going to do a big pop album, but before I do, let's see if I can sneak this in under the wire. Yeah, I'm going to play around a bit, really, isn't mm. it? But also I think it's interesting that the 80s becomes his, his sort of decade for acting as well, isn't it? Mm. It's like he knows that he can put on roles that his whole sort of like music career has been to uh, adopt a role, shed it, create another role. Yeah. Um, And now he's seen a second opportunity to do that um, in a a more condensed way of just, you know, I've got 90 minutes of screen time to fill. Uh, I'll do a role. Because you think, I mean, I still think to this day, my my favourite Bowie performance is um, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic performance. And anybody who says that he he can't, I don't think he's an actor, but anybody who says he can't convince in a role hasn't seen that film, really. Yeah, I would cite that as the most immersive thing that he's done. Yeah, and they all come relatively quickly from here on, don't they, really? I think, like, I mean, I'm not sure the exact dates, but I'm sure I'm sure Merry Christmas was sort of about 84 or something like that. And this is about 82. So, I mean, the, the and then Labyrinth's about 86, isn't it? Yeah, so they're all yeah. sort of coming relatively quickly. And it's interesting that, yeah, it, it's interesting that it happens then because, of course, another part of what happens as the ACs go on is that he hits his first serious wobble in his music career, and you can look at those 80s films and the soundtracks that came with them as being almost an alternative history of Bowie. If he wasn't making stuff like Tonight and Never Let Me Down, he just, where his head was also at that he could have been at. Yeah, I think we take it for granted now, don't we? But it's like nobody knew that rock and roll had a lifelong career you know it yes. wasn't it wasn't meant to be something that you could maintain into your 50s or you know mm. your mid 70s or whatever it is that uh, the stones are at now yeah so these were like the first sort of generation to 
to make a full lifelong career out of it. So I suppose Bowie hitting 40 is probably thinking, this might not last forever. I might have to sort of uh, diversify into something else. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's only right that it might be movies. And he, of course, he'd, he'd just done The Elephant Man, didn't he? Um, On stage, before, yes. before going to Baal. I think it was The Elephant Man that uh, Mark sort of spotted him from, really, and thought, well, let's see if we can get him. It was a big turning point in his career as an actor because I mean he'd been in The Man Who Fell to Earth which is amazing I adore that film but it is based to a large part on his existing persona yeah he'd been yeah. in just a gigolo after that which was a major <sighs> flop yeah not a good film at all no and then suddenly he's in The Elephant Man, and that's a real transformative piece of acting. Famously, he did it without any prosthetics. He conveys yeah. Joseph Merrick's disfigurement and physical limitations purely it's... through his own physical movement. Physicality, yeah. It's all the best stuff he learned from um, Lindsay Kemp, really, isn't yes. it? The whole sort of mime stuff, the idea of using your body as a, as a performance tool. Is my it, body it, is my tool. Is it tool? Yes. <laughs> Hey, my mame. <laughs> I genuinely did not mean to evoke Ron Atkinson in not the nine o'clock news there. But um, as soon as as soon as I saw your face just go, I thought, he's thinking of something. <laughs> what have I just said? And he just came straight in with a quote. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it's a, it's it. I think you've hit something there when you said, like, you know, uh, the man who fell to earth is based solely on his his presence. I mean, it's mm. it's cracked actor, isn't it? It's yeah. sat in the back of the limo with the fedora hat on. I mean, it, 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 that's the biggest and best audition piece you can get for the man who fell to earth, really, isn't it? And, and um, like, I mean, we'll be diving more into the man who fell to earth next week. But like this, it was not intended as a pop star vehicle. There were lots of quote-unquote proper actors who were linked yeah, with it. Yeah, O'Toole was up for it, wasn't he? O'Toole, Robert Redford was. Um, oh, right, okay. Yeah. That's, that's that would have been interesting. Few. Yeah. But as soon as Bowie gets into it, it's obvious that Rogue has, has refashioned his ideas for the film around who Bowie is. Yeah, yeah. And I mean... That's the interesting thing about Elephant Man and Baal, really, in the sense that they do not fit any of that mm. elegant rock star look that he he'd perfected for much of much of his career up to that point. Yeah, he is genuinely playing against type. Yeah, you know, to play um, John Merrick and then to play a horrible, rotten dissolute, tooth. rotten tooth artist. I yeah. mean. I think if he'd had a mind to it now in 1982 and he said, we want some jumped up artist who likes to, who looks rotten, his teeth are awful. Um, he thinks nothing of abusing people. He'd probably go for a punk, wouldn't he? He'd probably ask Johnny Rotten what he was doing that week, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. And of course, Bowie was left alone. Left alone, yeah, yeah. By the punk generation. You know, they Which... never saw him as one of the kind of parents they needed to kill. Yeah, I mean, he sort of nicely exiled in Germany, wasn't he? Which, yeah. again, is a is an audition piece for this as well, yeah. really, isn't it? But, um, yeah, he sort of escaped the uh, the wrath of, um, of punk's Kill Your Darlings, really, didn't he? Um, but, and in a way, I suppose that makes it more seamless for him to just adopt this guy straight yes. away. Whereas... You know, in the same way that the album he'd released before this, Scary Monsters, is very much mm. him looking at the the developing kind of synth pop and new romantic landscape and putting on a persona that reminds you who did it first. You yeah, can read yeah. Baal as being him applying the Scary Monsters template to punk in that way, I guess. I think so, yeah, yeah. Interesting, yeah. But the, the other major uh, contribution this made towards Bowie's career is the soundtrack album he released, which is astonishingly good, I think. Never heard it. Never heard it. Ah, well, yeah. Hi, the to YouTube, where it's all been put right. up. I shall do that. 
rather than the old one-string banjo arrangement. Is, yes. <laughs> you may remember that from the beginning of this podcast, listeners. <laughs> rather than that, he got Tony Visconti in to orchestrate it with like a German pit orchestra. Oh, wow. Because I, I have seen it sort of, you know, on online a few times. I think, God, who wants to listen to that? Yes. No, it's bad enough to watch it. Who <laughs> I mean, that 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 would be Barleks, really. What <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> a load of old Barleks. That would be. <laughs> Never mind the Barleks. <laughs> well, the film is like the Let It Be Naked version of what <laughs> Visconti put out. <laughs> The Visconti stuff is that, beautiful. Uh, that makes a, more sense now, yeah. There's a version of Baal's hymn, which is the song that he comes back to and sings different verses off throughout the, the film, where it's all stitched together in one, like, five-minute song with a full orchestra, and it's incredible. It's so good. But I must I must say as well, anybody who sort of sits and watches Baal and thinks, God, this, this one... Cold, you know, it's bloody awful. I mean, again, you sometimes with with Brecht, you've got to remember what con what context these these things were were, and it was cabaret. It was sort yes. of like, you know, it wasn't supposed to be all spit and polish and wonderfully presented. It was a bit rough and ready and a bit ramshackle and a bit uh, interesting and dive and um, subversive, I guess. Yeah, and I, I think mean, there's. We could end in a lot of ways, but I think a bit interesting and subversive is a pretty good <laughs> summation point for Baal, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. It's uh, Yeah, definitely. It's not my favourite by any stretch. It rates very low down on my appreciation of Clark, really, but mm. it's a must-watch, really, yeah. I think, because if you're after something quite interesting and subversive, then, yeah, this is the place to be. And do listen to those Visconti recordings because aside from I will do, yeah. some yeah. of Bowie's best vocal performances, the version of the Drowned Girl is chilling. It's so good. Right. I shall I shall get on to that. I shall get thee to YouTube as you Indeed. rightly recommended. So, as we said, next week it's one of the all-time big hitters from Bowie's film career. It's the man who fell to earth. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yes until next week uh that's all from pop screen i've been graham and i have been mark <laughs> and we'll see you next week <laughs>